Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio Classics, where we take a look at a classic episode with some behind-the-scenes information. Now, this one is recommended to me by longtime supporter of the show, Cantillions. Cantillions, if memory serves me correctly, was one of the earliest followers of the podcast. I'm talking Ash Black early, the guy who developed the original logo. I'm pretty sure Cantillions was an early, early adapter to the podcast. So Cantillions, really, really appreciate all the support all this time. Cantillions recommended this episode, and it's an interesting one. I have a lot to say about it, and I'm going to have some behind-the-scenes information at the end of the episode. If you've listened to the episode, you can skip to the end. If you haven't, I recommend giving it a check. Is that a thing? Do people go, hey, I'm going to give that book a check. But do that, do that thing I just invented. So I'm going to have some behind-the-scenes information at the end, but for now, go ahead and listen to episode 182. Was the world destroyed in the 1860s? A man hunts for a monster only he believes in. And then today is the day. I know I always say this, but the most requested topic, just wait till I read the list of names of people who have requested this story, it's from the Conspiracy Iceberg, and it may change the way you think about history, because now we are going to tackle the Great Mud Flood, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you are having a great day too. I'm always happy when I start recording again. Because, you know, I go maybe two two days without recording, and some days I bulk record episodes when I have a lot of free time. But it's always nice to come back. It's always nice to get back on the mic. And I'm having a lot of fun, and I hope you guys are still having a lot of fun listening to the show as well. So this first story is actually a recommendation. I got it. This was in my email, and this was sent by... Moss X. Moss X? One of the two. But I appreciate this story. So he goes, hey, here's a story idea for you. Honey Island Swamp Monster. Probably never heard of it before. And it was funny because he also said that it's... The way that I read sometimes, especially when I'm reading emails and stuff like that, before I respond, I have to read it again. When I'm initially reading it, my eyes kind of scan it real quickly. So I see the title, Honey Island Swamp Monster, and then I see the word smell. So I was like, a monster that smells like honey? I'm in. But then I realized that it was just a smelly monster, but it was still intriguing. 
Although I would have enjoyed the sweet-smelling monster. I wonder if any cryptids do smell good out there. I wonder if there's a cryptid that smells like sweet, sweet flowers. Ghosts do. So I don't see why cryptids wouldn't. Anyways, so we're going to Louisiana. And a little bit out of New Orleans, a little couple miles away from New Orleans, there is Honey Island Swamp. Walking through the swamp. We're walking through the swamp. We got those rubber pants on so we won't get wet. But... I made sure that yours were just a little too short, so they immediately get flooded with water, and you sink a bit, and then I have a good chuckle. And while you're dealing with horrible diseases you catch from the swamp, we also go back in time. We're going back to the year 1974. And in 1974, two men emerged from the swamp, Harlan Ford and Billy Mays. No, no, sorry. Harlan Ford and Billy Mills. They come out of the swamp with a plaster cast of a footprint, And they, like, throw it down on the ground and go, proof! Now, there wasn't anyone around when they did that, so then they had to pick it up and actually go into town, and then they take it into a bar and go, proof! People are like, proof of what? So, Harlan Ford and Billy Mills had said that they had once seen a creature in Honey Island Swamp. They described it as seven-foot-tall, gray-haired creature that they estimated would weigh about 400 pounds giant monster man so and it had yellow or red glowing eyes and the difference in the eye color could be chalked up to either what time of day they saw it in or how bloodshot their own eyes were when they were out hunting glug glug but anyways they come into town with this plaster cast and people are thinking well it kind of sounds like a bigfoot harlan and he's like yeah but this one's different Because look at this plaster cast, and it looks like it had webbed toes. And you can see photos of these. They basically, it looks like it has four toes. One's kind of folded in or something weird. But the toes are webbed. It's not like a primate's footprint. And the thing is, is in 1963, these guys came out of Honey Island Swamp. They're like, this is what we just saw. We were walking through the swamp. We saw a boar with its throat ripped out and a giant monster. And we went to shoot it, and the monster ran away. Nobody believed them. People are like, that's, you're making that up. You're making that up. So about nine years later, more like 11 years later, they find this, they find a footprint, they go and they pour the plaster in there, bring it back. People are like, here, they go, here's proof. There's proof that there is this monster running around. Nobody believes them. And it's one of those weird things that a lot of communities really like to have, like Bigfoot sightings and stuff like that, because you can sell tchotchkes and things like that. But this would not take off. This would not take off. Harlan dedicated his life to finding proof of the Honey Island Swamp Monster. He was out there consistently after these two sightings, and he did bring back other plaster casts. But for whatever reason, the people in the town took it as a a myth. They weren't really embracing it. Even today, you have tour guides, and they say the swamp, this swamp is really like beautiful. It's very untouched. You go there to visit. It's just a great place. It's a great recreational place, and they have boat tours. You can take boat tours through the area. I was reading this article one guy did. He said, hey, I'm going to go on this boat tour. Check it out. He talks to the two tour operators, and they're like, there's no Honey Island Swamp Monster. And it's funny because these people could actually make more money by saying that there was. But they're like, it doesn't exist. It absolutely doesn't exist. There are boat tours you can take where it's called the Honey Island Swamp Monster Boat Tour. But it was funny in the article where the guy was taking the boat tour, he saw that boat still docked. No one was on it. Because people just want to go and enjoy nature. Even in that area, people aren't like, 
this creature exists, you know, oh no, I ran into it when me and my uncle were out playing baseball one day and the baseball fell in the swamp. Like, they don't buy it. Which is odd, but it might just be because the only people who have ever seen it are the two people who first saw it and then the people who started bringing back plaster casts. Harlan Ford was dedicated to finding the proof of this thing. So much so that for the next six years he was constantly looking for it. Why only six years? Because he died in 1980 without ever having any proof, conclusive proof, that what he saw standing over that boar and what was leaving those footprints was real. And it would be a footnote, uh, no pun intended, it would be a footnote in cryptid history about the Honey Island Swamp Monster. It would just be a funny name for a creature that the locals don't believe, that they almost actively dismiss it's like when people go to towns and start asking for the Blair Witch, they're like, Blair Witch isn't real, you know, it's fake, right? Now, like I was saying, this is, would be a footnote in cryptid history, but the main proponent of it is dead. I don't know what ever happened to Billy Mays. He's a footnote within a footnote. It was, he passed away, there was never any proof, people assumed it was a hoax, and it might have been, but a hoax that has become cemented in the minds of of millions of girls everywhere. Monster High dolls are a line of dolls of monster girls that are attending a school called Monster High. So you have Frankenstein, and you have like a Dracula chick and a wolf girl and Laguna Beach or whatever. They're all the daughters of famous monsters. And somehow, all these famous monsters now are also attending Monster High with Honey Swamp, the daughter of the Honey Island Swamp Monster. She's not a Bigfoot. She is like a sea creature thing. So she get rid of all that fur. No girl wants to be covered in fur. Be 7 feet tall. Or 400 pounds. Some of them might want to be 7 feet tall. But she's just like a, a, a creature from the Black Lagoon type creature. She's 115 years in monster years. According to her bio. Which is how I'm going to start describing my age. And so here's her bio. Let's learn a little bit about Honey Swamp, since we don't know much about her father. I'm a proper southern ghoul from the swamps of Honey Island. My mama always taught me if you work hard and follow your screams, you can be anything you want to be. Well, I want to be a world-famous cinematographer in Hauntlywood. Now, I do know how to pronounce the word cinematographer, but the dashes here make me think they're trying to emphasize ogre. Cinema to ogrefer. Because, you know, she's a monster. She's also friends with Claudia Wolf and Viperine Gorgon, if you want to complete your collection. So he did get that legacy, at least. So Harlan, if you're up there and you're watching down, I hope you're happy with the fact that millions of girls around the world are now playing with dolls Named after your hoax. So it wasn't a waste of time. Who would have thought that when you and your buddy one drunken evening decided to go out and start pouring plaster into footprints you made and that hoax turned in to a worldwide phenomenon? If you play with Monster High Dolls. Otherwise, you still don't know about this creature. But but good job. Good job, Harlan. You, you created a hoax and it became a doll. And I don't, honestly, I don't think anyone else can claim that. A lot of hoaxes out there, but not all of them attend Monster High. So let's go ahead and move on to our next story. Now, I know that 
a lot of times when I do these iceberg topics, I go, this is the most requested topic we've had. Because at the time, they were. But there was one that was constantly gaining people saying, hey, when are you going to do this story? When are you going to do this story? And it's time. The reason why it took so long, these story, these conspiracies are are much more time-intensive to research. A lot of times people go, do more iceberg conspiracy stuff. And I do. Like, Kentucky Meat Storm was ice iceberg conspiracy, but... The stuff that I really like, the deep conspiracies I really have to get into, they take a while. I enjoy researching these ones. I really enjoy researching them because I'm kind of trying to unravel a puzzle. It can just take a while because they keep running into roadblocks and go, oh, now I'm back to square one. On YouTube, this was requested by Bent Fox, by Red Baron. On email, there was Matthew T, Jimmy M, and on Twitter, I had Harrison. All of these people requested Mud Flood. Now you go, mud flood? What is, what is mud flood? The year is 2019. The place, wherever you're at right now. It may just seem like a normal day. But you remember in the back of your mind. You remember when you were in school learning about this day. It was the day after humanity decided to start building out of the mud. This was the day when humanity said the mud flood would no longer hold us back. You remember learning in school about the great excavations of Europe. How they had to dig cities out of tons of mud that came rushing down from the mountains. You also remember hearing stories about the American frontier. Where the mud just smashed into buildings, burying them up to a floor deep. Until humanity decided to take back the land. And you think, you reflect back on that day that you learned about all those years ago in school. What an amazing feat of human engineering that we were able to clear out that much dirt and regain control of this planet. But that 2019, that place where you are, that exists in an alternate timeline. Because in this timeline... Not only did the mud stay, but the powers that be covered the entire thing up. The Great Mud Flood is a very, very interesting conspiracy theory. And for this one, I'd been working on it for quite a while. I actually reached out to a friend of mine, Mitchum. I was like, I do not know what to make of this. There has to be a rational explanation. This one... I was completely stuck in. And none of these are mud puns. None of this stuff like digging out of a hole or getting stuck and stuff like that. None of these are mud puns. I remember reaching out to my friend Mitchum and I sent him some stuff and I said, I don't know what to make of this. I do not know what to make of this. This is, I go, it has to be fake. It has to be. This is what the great mud flood is. This is the theory. In the 1860s to 1870s, A massive wave of mud covered the earth and buried most of our cities up to 8 to 12 feet in mud. And you think, well, that's stupid. That's that's obviously not true. The evidence for it is videos and photos of buildings all over the world buried up to the first floor in mud. So you will see buildings that have window, like you can see the top of a window 
sticking out of the cement. Like you can see where the ground is. And then you see on the building, there is definitely the shape of where a window would have been. That's been bricked up. And now the street is level to that window. You'll see pictures of what appear to be formerly first floors of buildings that are now basements. Odd doors that you have to walk downstairs to get into the front door. You'll see photos of excavations where they were doing road work. And you'll find see a building that has, and again, an entire first floor with entrance doors and windows. So they weren't originally basements. They're excavating this. You'll see a front door and windows underneath the ground. And I'm looking at these things and I'm thinking, okay, these photos are real. There's actually a building that I know of that has the windows sticking out of the ground corner. So these build, these photos are real. These photos are not photoshopped. And I'm looking at, and I'm looking at them and I'm watching these videos and I'm thinking, yes, that evidence is real. Those buildings are farther underground than they should be. A front door should not be underground. But the idea that a mud flood covered the planet and buried all of these buildings, I was thinking, that's not true. Now, see, here's the thing. The, the theory, there's two, more to the theory. So not only did the mud flood come over, but it was covered up to hide. It was basically used as a hard reset on humanity because there was a super advanced civilization that was so wonderful and at peace and they had all these amazing pieces of technology and this free energy and these super weapons even though they were peaceful and it was like this multicultural multi-religious society that existed before 1860s and the mud flood came super technology didn't help them stop that and at that time the powers that be whoever whatever boogeyman you want it to be said we're going to wipe them off the map and we're going to say they never existed. And we're going to use this mud to basically bury everything that's proof of them. And do like a hard reset on the history of the world. So I can buy like it was so basically I'm working against two conspiracy theories. One, the, the civilization, the super advanced civilization that's been wiped off the map. And two, a history reset due to the mud flood. And, well, and then three, just the, the geographical features itself. Now, alternate history is easy to kind of look into, but I'm looking at these photos and watching these videos and I'm thinking, this, I cannot figure this out. But that was the main piece I really needed to tackle, and that's why this took so long. I talked to Mitchum and I said, I sent him this stuff and I go, this is killing me. This is killing me. I, I, there has to be a rational explanation for this. And, and he actually pointed me in the right path on the mud flood thing. Which is really interesting. Now, what I'm about to go into, you could say, I'm going to present this, and you could say, well, that's not the case in this city, and that's not the case in this city. But I think it's close enough, and I have enough proof for enough cities that it, it applies to most of them. There were massive rain floods in the 1860s around the world. There was this huge rainstorm, storm, uh, set of storm systems, all sorts of stuff. And there's geographical and historical records of these massive rainstorms that caused flooding everywhere, almost all over the planet. And when we look at these buildings that have been covered up by the mud, this episode is probably going to run a little long, but this, I mean, I kind of got to get through all this stuff. When we look at the buildings that have been covered up in the mud, they were built pre-1860s. 
It's not like houses that were built in the 1970s are a foot deep. All of the buildings that have this mud problem, or basically the street level is where their second story would be, are all built before the 1860s. This was the thing that Mitchum turned me on to. He said, I do remember reading something a long time ago about Napoleon trying to clean up the cities of France. They needed brand new infrastructure in these cities. And they didn't know how to do it. It might be related to that. And I started looking into that. And Napoleon did go about these huge projects because they were having issues with flooding. They were having issues with cholera. They were having issues with stuff like that. But I could never find anything that actually said, so they did X. And then I found an article on Wikipedia about the raising of Chicago. Now, this was, this was really the key to unlocking the mud flood thing. Because once I kind of cued into this, I realized that other than the raising of Chicago, this is such a mundane answer for such a bizarre conspiracy that it's hard to find because it's such a... People were like, yeah, why are you Googling that? Why are you researching that? It doesn't really make sense because we're just a small town that was built prior to 1860. We didn't really care about that. 1860, they were having problems with flooding, and all over the world, we were having these huge population explosions in cities. And when you have huge population explosions in cities, no longer can you just use mid-1800 sewage technology. So Chicago says, you know what, we need sewers that are enough to, to basically hold the sewage of millions of people. But we can't dig deep enough into the earth to put all this stuff in. However, we can lift all of our buildings up, put in our sewer system, cover that, and then we don't have to worry about floods either. And there was a ton of documentation on the raising of Chicago. Entire buildings, entire giant buildings were lifted. And some of them were even moved. And then the ground was filled in. And then they were lowered back again. It was this huge effort on behalf of the city to do this. But they needed to do it because they needed to get these sewage systems up to speed. So in Chattanooga, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, they also... Oh, and the raisin in Chicago? 1860s is when that happened. The, uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they were like, we know that they did this, something like this in Chicago, but we don't want to do that. We are having serious trouble with flooding and sewage. So, we are going to fill in the streets. We're just going to fill them in with dirt. We're going to bring all this dirt in. And this was the thing. It was, and I think this was a component with a lot of these other cities. And that's why there's not a ton of records on this stuff. It was per building. It was your job as a building owner to raise your street level. Because otherwise, in Chattanooga, they were having serious trouble with flooding. They could not control the flooding in the area. So, they said... Floods cause disease. We're having cholera outbreaks. It's go. There were buildings that were never dry. You'd go into the first floor. It was always wet and musty because of the floods. They said, we have to raise the city by a couple feet, by 8 to 10 feet. However, it's per building. So as a building owner, it is your responsibility to do that. And you would have to do that because if everyone on your block had their building raised and you didn't raise your dirt level by eight feet, it's going to be, you're going to be soaping wet. All of the rainwater is going to go in there. 
And it happens over the course of years where people are just filling in dirt. Now, I typed in, like, or this is what I was Googling, like, origin of the Russian sewer system, origin of the Paris sewage system. When were the sewers built in this city or that city? And that information is so fairly mundane, I'm not able to pull up anything like that. I just had to find these scraps. Oh, Chattanooga, also, that project took place in the 1860s. So the timeline does match up. At some point in the 1860s, all these countries said, we're having this population growth, and we're having these huge cholera outbreaks, we're having these huge disease outbreaks. We just had these massive rainstorms all over the planet. We just need to make our city a little bit higher. And we could do the raising of Chicago thing, or we can just bring in dirt and sacrifice the first floor of all these buildings. Now, the mud flood community, they have their answers for this stuff. I was reading one site, and they're like, yeah, we don't think the raising of Chicago actually happened. We think that was a cover-up. That's an easy thing to, that's an easy route to get lost down. I don't think that that's fair to say when someone says, well, actually, here's an explanation for why these buildings are all around the same time covered in dirt. It's because we have these massive rainstorms in the area or around the globe, and it made sense. Other cities were doing it. And then for people to just go, oh, that's just part of the cover-up. You can't really debate that. But to me, and with Mitchum's help, I had found a way to answer, because those mud flood pictures were really freaking me out, dude. Those mud flood pictures, I'm thinking, like, what is going on? There's tons of them. This conspiracy theory actually tends to be mostly on YouTube because it's such a visual conspiracy theory. If I just told you in 1860s mud came from everywhere and buried the planet, you'd be like, what? That's not true. But after watching an hour of video footage and photographs of these things, you're thinking, mud must have buried the planet. Until I And I never couldn't, I mean, I could imagine believing that. But at a certain point in the back of my head, I always knew, my voice is going hoarse from doing this episode. I always knew that there had to be a rational explanation for this. There had to be. But we're not done. And I was thinking, okay, we got it. That's We're good on that. Now I have to tackle their other issue about this lost civilization thing. Because if I just do the mud flood part and leave that part hanging, then I've only really looked into half of it. And that's where it took me a bit longer. This episode was supposed to come out maybe two weeks ago, and then I had to look into all this stuff. The mysterious civilization that they talk about that was wiped off the map. I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but it's called Tatari. T-A-R-T-A-R-Y. And I was reading in these mud flood blog posts, and they're like, yes, Tatari was this multicultural, any religion you wanted to, milk and honey rivers, advanced technology, better than us humans, this massive nation, and we didn't like them, so we wiped them out, blah, blah, blah. And every time I'm reading that, I'm dismissing it as more, more nonsense. Because I'm looking into this mud stuff. I'm looking at that. And as I was getting ready to release this episode a while back, I typed in Tatari. And I was like, okay, well, I need to figure out more about this just as like a footnote. God damn it if I didn't find 50 maps of the world from pre-1860 that say Grand Tatari on them. And I was like, okay, episode's postponed. I gotta look into this now. Map after map after map. These ancient maps that have from halfway into China's borders all the way to basically Moscow that just say Grand Tatari on them. Now, this gets weird. So, Grand Tatari is this idea that before 
the 1860s, again, before the 1860s, people in Europe referred to anything east, basically east of Moscow, as Tatar. It was kind of this catch-all term for what was out there, for the people that were out there, and it was just like this thing. And then, after 1860s, Russia, it's all just it was called Russia. Now, at first I'm thinking, well, that's kind of like how Persia exists. And then, like, the 1930s, Iran says, we'd prefer to be called Iran. We're not Persia anymore. And everyone goes, okay, no, we don't care. We'll call you Iran. Because people in the area called themselves Iranians and Iran or some variation of that. They're like, we don't go by Persia anymore. Okay. Same thing, Orient. That's a term that's fallen out of disuse. So we do have places on maps that have fallen out of disuse. Tatari was basically considered a wild region full of Mongolians and a lot of Muslims. It was mostly Muslim country out there. And that's a thing that the conspiracy theory dismisses. They're like, no, 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 they weren't Muslim. It was this multicultural, great place that you could do anything you wanted with this advanced technology. But it wasn't just Muslims. But back then, it was considered basically a Muslim stronghold. We have drawings of their uniforms, of their troops. Sometimes they're described as militia members. Sometimes they're described as an acting army. We have impressions of what their flags look like. There was a a little article, and this was on a Mudflood website, but they had a scan of a little article saying there was an opera currently being performed in six languages, and it was like English, Russian, French, Tatari. I'm like, what the hell is this? And all this terminology for this area and for this region of people stopped being used in the 1860s. Just immediately fell out of vogue. And I'm thinking, as I'm reading this, I'm constantly thinking of the Persian-Iranian example. Where people who live in Iran, that area is now called Iran. So you have maps, John, or the Orient example as well. You no longer have maps that say the Orient, and it's like the entire region. Now you have China and South Korea and stuff like that. So... It doesn't mean that the empire of the Orients were wiped off the map and it was all hidden history and stuff like that at all. It just means that maps have been redrawn. But when I look at stuff like the flag and the uniforms, I'm thinking, what was out there? What was out there? But I don't think, and I'm thinking, and I'm like, I don't think there was some grand empire wiped off the map. But I have to keep looking. I'm thinking there was no great, I, I, I just, I was like, it was weird because I, it was almost like cognitive dissonance. Like I'm thinking this can't be real. The mud flood thing I'd already put to rest. I'd already found, it's to me, sufficient answers of why buildings looked like that. But now for me to have to look into a civilization that I've never heard of that used to take up one, one half of Europe that was gone now, I'm thinking it's just like the Orient. It's not an issue. And then I found this. And to be fair, I did find it on a mud flood website, but they have the link to the actual CIA document, and I checked that out as well. Back in 1957, there was a CIA document written. It was talking about the way that the Russians were treating the Muslims in the area. How they basically at first said, you guys are all welcome here, you're welcome to be here, but how this the point in 1957, the Soviet Union, but how they were saying how they were actually subjugating the Muslim populations of the Soviet Union altogether. And this is a document from written in 1957 from a CIA operative or researcher, however you want to put it. Or let us take the matter of history, which along with religion, 
language, and literature constitute the core of a people's cultural heritage. Here again, the communists have interfered in a shameless matter. For example, on 9 August 1944, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow, issued a directive ordering the party's Tartar Provincial Committee to proceed to a scientific revision of the history of Tartarsia, to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of a nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history. In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten, let us be frank, was to be falsified, in order to eliminate reference to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of the real course of Tartar-Russian relations. And this was no isolated case. In every Muslim area within the USSR, historians on orders of the Communist Party have rewritten history to distort the facts so that the Russians appear always in a good light. Needless to say, histories which present the facts truthfully have been withdrawn and destroyed, so that the present and future generation of Muslims are forever denied the chance of learning the true facts of their nation's past. I don't think that the Great Mud Flood happened. I think that there would be way too much evidence of that all over the world. And there really isn't. The evidence can easily be explained away by them having to redo the systems. I think the idea that Tartar or Tataria was a advanced civilization with way cool, super epic mechs and like this awesome magic and this free energy and stuff like that. And they're multicultural and blah, all these buzzwords. I think it's absolute trash. I don't believe that at all. But the idea that there was a nation within the past hundred years that was basically wiped off the planet and then actively suppressed to the point where the CIA is talking about it in 1957. I mean, it could have been an alliance of city-states type of thing, so they did have like flags and stuff like that and uniforms, but it was never a great world power. I'm sure there are a lot of countries and regions that have changed names over the years, like the examples that I've previously given. But something about it still, the, the, the Tartar part, something about it still just doesn't sit right with me. When I read, when I was reading initially, sites were like, sites that were debunking it was like, oh, it's just this term that the Western Europeans made up because the place, it sounds like a scary name. It reminds them of Greek mythology and, and hell. And so it was just some name they threw out there because it sounded spooky and they didn't know what was out there. That was the dismissive part. The people who believed that it was this great civilization, they stole the virtues of this giant empire that used to exist to the point that Napoleon and the Tsar had to team up to destroy them. But it's weird because even the debunking stuff doesn't admit what the, what the CIA document does. That these people did exist at some point. And that the Soviet Union made a concentrated effort to remove them, to change their history, to rewrite it. The thing that trips me out most about the Grand Tatari, Tatar Empire, however you want to call it, is that I'm, this is episode what, like 183, 184? I've debunked a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of iceberg conspiracy theories where I say, I don't think this is true, but this is what I think the theory is. Let's just put on our little imagination caps and run with it. 
But this one, not the mud flood again. That part's ridiculous. But the idea that there was a nation that was wiped off the planet and out of the history books. And if I, if you ask me right now, dismissing the mud flood, I think that's been thoroughly debunked. But if you asked me right now, Jason, do you believe that there used to be a nation in Europe called Tatar with its own culture, people, uniforms, flags, language that covered most of the continent and was wiped off the map and out of the history books since 1860. Jason, do you believe that conspiracy theory? I have to honestly answer with, I don't know. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. It's funny, yesterday's episode that I did a classics of, Sam the Sandown Clown, I said I would have never chosen that episode to be a classics episode. Not that the episode wasn't good. Because what I was mentally going through because of the episode, this is the same thing, actually. It's very, very interesting that you guys have picked these episodes. Yesterday, Cole, Danielle, and Tommy Davidson picked Sam the Sandown Clown. Today, Cantillians picked this one. But this one was different. Sam the Sandown Clown, I was in a different mental space. I didn't know if I was going to be able to continue to find stuff for the show. It was actually later than this episode as well. At this point in the show, I was still having a pretty easy time finding stories. This episode, I think, is... Not to pat myself on the back, this is a great episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I have not listened to this episode since I recorded it. I was super frustrated recording it. I had a really hard time behind the scenes. Not necessarily mentally, like I did with yesterday's episode, Sam the Sandown Clown, but the, the episode was so long and so dense. I remember this episode came out on a Sunday night and it took so much work, it was exhausted by the end of it. I, and not just the research, like the story I tell in the research, the story where I'm like, you know, I had to turn, it was my buddy Carson, I was using a fake name back then for a Mitchum, but it was my buddy Carson, I remember going to him and being like, how is this real? I remember I did, this was one of the episodes I did so much research on, and I loved doing the research, but it was so dense I cover the Mud Flood and Tataria, which both of those subjects have hour-long documentaries on YouTube about. And I remember the episode was much, much longer. Back then, I had a hard 35-minute rule. The episode had to be 35 minutes long. There were a few times I would go over that if I really had to. And nowadays, I've actually lengthened it. No one's really said anything or noticed or cared. Maybe they do notice, but they like it. Now I have a hard limit of 40 minutes. I've given after 300, after 600 episodes now, I give myself an extra five minutes to play with. A lot of the episodes still come in early, but the episode works for me so well. I think it's very, very complicated topics. And I think that it's presented... This whole behind-the-scenes thing isn't just talking about how much I think the episode's great, but it's just a little bit, because i got to go into something else. I remember when I was re-listening to it, I was like, wow, this episode fully explains and backs up with evidence 
the mud it fully explains the mud flood like what the theory is and then explains what the evidence is and then it does the same thing with tataria says here's the conspiracy theory here's the proof that tataria used to exist that it was this muslim country it wasn't this high-tech atlantean country and then there's a a funny segment at the beginning about the honey swamp island monster about this hoax that became a child's doll I think this might be one of the best episodes of Dead Rabbit Radio ever. I This episode completely fell under the radar for me, so thank you, Cantillians. I've always recommended episodes like Monkeys Don't Exist, which is a funny episode. I really like that episode. Mormon Bigfoot, those are easy things to say and it gets people's attention. But The Great Mud Flood, this episode, and, and it's funny because I can't really call it that. I'll explain that in a second, probably. But... Was the world destroyed in the 1860s is a great episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. And I remember, though, when I was done editing it, it was one of those episodes that I never wanted to listen to again. It took so much work to get this episode out that I was so frustrated. And I have to say that everything I left on the cutting room floor, you could go, oh, there's more information out there. It most likely sucked. It most likely, <laughs> if I'm off, those facts suck. It was a problem. A lot of times the editing is I'm cutting out really bad jokes and then I'm doing multiple takes because for the most part, these episodes are recorded in just one shot. Sometimes if there's an audio problem or if something's really off, I'll stop and come back hours later. But for the most part, I may repeat certain facts over and over again until I get it right. Don't do that with pronunciations, by the way. But I try to keep it as free form as possible. I try not to do that a lot. Usually it's the endings that I do repeats on. Because that's where I'm trying to wrap up a narrative. Usually it's not like I repeat a fact wrong. Like If I make a mistake in the episode and I catch it, I'll edit that out. But I just remember this episode being such a nightmare to edit and to craft. And to try to fit all this information into 35 minutes. And... I think it's one of the best episodes of Dead Rabbit Radio. It, as much as it sucked mentally for me to do it, I got it done. I remember also I was super busy with personal stuff as well at this time. So I didn't want to, when I saw this pop up, when Cantillians recommended it, I was like, oh, that episode, it's probably super boring. I haven't listened to it in a long time. And um, we'll give it a shot. We'll listen to it. And I listen to it and I go, this might be in the top 10 best Dead Rabbit Radio episodes because it has the funny story at the beginning and then it has the hard story at the end. And I like that juxtaposition. Uh, the funny story kind of gets you in. You're like, oh yeah, I've never heard of the Honey Island Swamp Monster. Oh, it's a, a monster high doll. That's funny. Cracking these jokes, cracking these jokes. And then bam, it goes into really investigative stuff about a, a topic that's all over the conspiracy theory world. The Great Mud Flood is big in the conspiracy theory world. So I'm a huge fan of this episode now. So Cantillians, I think you picked this. One last one last note, too. One last note. I think it's interesting because I try to limit like the stress I'm going through from leaking into the show. I can hear it, see. When this episode was recommended, when Sam the Sandown Clown was recommended, I knew exactly. I was like, I remember the mental state I was in recording those episodes some episodes like the one about the russians turning into pillars the ufo i was i was actually upset that wasn't a bit i was upset that my time was being wasted it was a friday friday episodes tend to be a little more freewheeling to begin with i'm a little more exasperated on that's not that's not how you pronounce it but i'm not doing another take on fridays because it's been a long week 
Now, sometimes I bulk record episodes. I may record a couple episodes in a day, which actually makes me even more tired, but it gives me more time to research, so it's like you have to choose. And you go, well, Jason, you say you're having a great day, but you're recording three episodes in a day. Well, you know what? When you're listening to that episode, I can almost guarantee I'm having a great day. So yeah, that is the behind the scenes for the episode, What's the World Destroyed in the 1860s? It was a lot of work to get this episode out, and I didn't appreciate it at the time. I just figured it was one of 633 episodes. Because that's how I look at it. Like, I love doing this show, but I'll record an episode, i got to move on to the next one. There's very few episodes that stand out to me. They either stand out to me because they were a lot of fun to cover, which even the Hans one, if you listen to the classics episode, the behind the scenes for the Hans one, that was a nightmare. That was the second or third draft of that episode. Like, that wasn't me just doing takes. That was me straight up scrapping 30 minutes of recording and being like, this sucks, this is horrible, the show's done. So maybe out of that stuff, I think this is one of the best episodes of Dead Rabbit Radio. Like, this is going to start to be an episode that I'm going to recommend to people. I think the presentation's great, and I think I was just so frustrated with the behind-the-scenes stuff that I totally forgot how good it was. I, I, this sounds like I'm totally patting myself on the back. I, I don't want it to come off that way. If I was a listener of this show, I'd be like, wow, this is... I guess what I'm saying is I know what I was going through mentally, and I had completely written off this episode. I never wanted to hear it again. So it means a lot to me that you guys listened to it and enjoyed it because that means that hard work and that mental struggle was worth it. So... There you go. I'll try not to pat myself on the back anymore. That was episode 182, was the world destroyed in the 1860s. That is one that I've actually clipped out and put on YouTube. I don't do that much anymore. I really don't do it at all. But I think this episode is just so full of information, that story about the mud flood in Tataria, that if you know anyone who believes in those conspiracy theories, direct them to this video. I, I think that it answers a ton of questions. So... That was that one. And we are going to have another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio Classics tomorrow. I hope you will be back. That one might actually give you an ability to change your life. See you guys then.